Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Hey, y'all, this is Matt. And Michelle from Thug Kitchen, here to tell you about our new show, Forked Up, a Thug Kitchen podcast exclusively on Podcast One. We're stepping out of the kitchen and into your earbuds every week to discuss food, politics, pop culture. Basically, we're just trying to give a fucking do better. Get your shit together with us every Thursday on Forked Up, a Thug Kitchen podcast right here on Podcast One. Download and listen to new episodes exclusively on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, y'all. Hey, and welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. Uh, as always, check out the uh, folks that support the program at DrU.com. We appreciate it very, very much. And our friends at Hydrolite and our friends at uh, – oh, we got a whole bunch of friends. But please help them help us. And we are very privileged to have with us today Joyce Maynard. Joyce, welcome to the program. It's, I've been looking forward to talking with you. I've been looking forward to talking with you, too. This is going to be very interesting. The, the new book is called The Best of Us. It's available on Amazon now. Uh, you can follow Joyce at Joyce Maynard, M-A-Y-N-A-R-D.com, or follow her on Twitter at Joyce Maynard, the usual spelling of Joyce. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to – well, the book is about the demise of your a recent marriage. Uh, but well, my marriage didn't die. I'm right. The husband did. The marriage was healthy. The marriage was I, – I was trying to think my, of a way of saying it. it was a, a new marriage where the husband died. Yes. And um, actually, I, I think of the book as, um, as a love story. But um, it's a love story set against the background of a catastrophic illness, which was pancreatic cancer. And I heard you say something um, rather striking, which was that you wish you didn't have to get cancer to learn about cancer. If only we could get the letters, yeah. the lessons of cancer without cancer, which is part of um, what I I hope to to convey in this book. Yes, and uh, definitely worth your reading for, for that very reason. And, and, and I want to say, too, just to in, by way of introducing the book, that um, Jim and I were, were both um, had been on our own a long time. Mm-hmm. When we found each other, this is this was not a young marriage. We had been um, married young and had three children, and had been on our own each of us for about twenty five years. When oh, we no found kidding! Each other. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and so we we never took it for granted. I was fifty seven; he was fifty nine. And uh, I, one of the things that struck me about your statement about I wish I had cancer or to learn about cancer. As a physician, I had a very strange reaction to it because on one hand, I thought, oh, but there are a million emotional lessons that people always talk about that there's no yes. other way to learn other than other than having, you know, being there or being a family member of somebody with that problem. But um, as a physician, we have been there a million times yes. and yet people don't want to listen to us. It, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why I was looking forward to talking with you, yeah. Drew, um, that um, I, I – have written a book that is 
um, about a journey through a relationship and a marriage, but also a medical journey and, mm-hmm. I, and I, a kind of a medical thriller in a way. I mean, we, I scoured the globe for a way to save my husband and I'm, there's nothing that I don't do pretty fiercely. So I, I, I lived, you know, with a phone on each ear trying to, um, and it astonishes me how, f- how, Few physicians have engaged in the conversation with me over the the few months since the book has been published. I, I, I sent is. it to all of our doctors. Um, uh, well, I, I mean, it's not for me to tell you how doctors are, but I don't think doctors like to fail. And and of course, no, they we didn't fail all the time. But cancer, you have pancreatic cancer. That's yeah, yeah. death. That's yeah. the six twelve um, months. Boom. But um, you know, for instance, I mean, I I'm jumping ahead in the story a little bit, but you get this diagnosis. Um, in our case, it was 15 months after our, our wedding and about three three years after we'd you met. You said something incredible. You said when you went back to get the diagnosis, you're like, oh, don't let this be gallstones. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, when did you give and anything they tell you, they tell you, you know, you, it's, it is definitely a post-traumatic stress moment that, 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 you, I, get into, you, know, yeah. that you walk into this room and – the whole world changes in an instant and the doctor sort of puts his hand on your shoulder and and tears came to his eyes and he said you know my father died of this like you will too and then he says there's one way that you might possibly survive and it's a surgery called the whipple procedure but you probably aren't even going to qualify for it and even if you do, even if you do, the cancer will probably come back. Yeah. But to people in that desperate situation, yeah, all you hear is, we've got to get the Whipple procedure. Yeah, I know. And I became, and of course we weren't you know, medical experts, but I brought myself up to speed as well as I could. I, I called every, every medical team, every pancreatic this team. This is the and, zone that makes me... Absolutely apoplectic, and this is why I wanted to, you know, speak in in this particular forum because, which is when you give people, they they can't the one percent is you just don't even hear one percent. You have to help make help them make the decision, and then thank God, yeah, I thought to myself in your store when your surgeon who did a nice job with the Whipple, which I would I wouldn't do that to my worst enemy that procedure. No, he called it a successful and surgery. Six and thirty-six out of thirty-eight nodes were negative. Yeah, and 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 that and and they always end that with got it all, got yeah. it all, and ninety-five yeah. percent of patients hear that as yes. you cured it, we're all yeah. done. Yeah. and the surgeons just leave that; they leave yeah. it there. Thank God you went. Wait a minute. There's two nodes that still yes. has cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get going. Let's yeah. get going. Uh, which led to another problem, of course, that we we went too we, fast. We went too fast. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it, uh, there it's a minefield. This uh, territory, yeah. and you know, we it's it's why most physicians would go on a long trip and then take a big dose of something. Well, when they get diagnosed, I like this. Um, I I will tell you that I I I love my life and I'm and I hope I have a long one. But if I got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow, um, unless somebody could give me a very particular argument for why the, this procedure made sense for me, I would say no, thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely, um, and there it, it are, makes, it, and there are. You know, I want to say for the you know one person who might be listening, who is going for this, there are well, very particular situations, and you absolutely. probably know better than well, I. Well, let me paint one for you. Um, Steve Jobs had exactly that situation. His life could have been saved yes. by something similar to a big yes. procedure like he had thing. a different kind. He had, he had neuro- a neuroendocrine tumor, yeah. and his can be cured. And with it, with Ruth with Bader Ginsburg is alive, thank God, mm-hmm. um, as a survivor of pancreatic cancer. 
that was detected when she went in for something. Accidentally. And again, it's way down in the yeah. tail or something. Yeah. Probably, but it's a different but I want to say, I mean, I don't, the book is not ultimately, although it's very tempting talking with you to just get down to, you know, I became a student of pancreatic cancer and, and a student of, of doctors and the medical world um, uh, as a person who'd never spent a night in a hospital until that oh, until no. that moment. But <laughs> oh, no. um, I had my babies I'm at so home sorry. even. I just stayed away from doctors yeah. and hospitals. But ultimately, what I wanted to explore was something more than cancer. Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore marriage. And, and in our case, um, it was really, it was the experience of navigating this brutally hard landscape. And, and this that, is what I hear from cancer patients frequently is that they, they, their relationships become intimate in a way and intense in a way that nothing else had ever given them. Even as all the things that I thought I wanted were stripped away. You know, I was, I was sort of addicted to romance and I, and I found it in Jim. If, uh, <laughs> um, he, you know, he was just a gloriously smart, funny, handsome, debonair man he you know he could have played james bond in a movie i actually on my website i created a little movie of of the two of us that it's a little three minute thing that sort of shows us over the course of our relationship and also what what that cancer did to him uh took him he was a trim man to begin with so there was nothing much to lose but he he went down to about 85 pounds I didn't quite show the end because that I thought was more brutal than anybody needed to see. But, but all of the trappings of what, what I believe constituted um, a love affair were taken away. You know, the sort of candlelit dinners and trips over the Golden Gate Bridge to, you know, go into San Francisco well, and go dancing. And what was left turned out to be the thing that mattered the most. Which is? Being... Truly known by somebody, feeling totally accepted by somebody, um, not in your most heroic moments necessarily, but although there was great heroism in in Jim in the way that he approached his illness and his death, but this I felt greatly honored to be allowed into this very intimate place with him. Well, feeling felt, they say, and feeling known is a similar phenomenon, is yeah. is thought to be the most important territory for people. Yeah. It was and what he said. somebody feels on you. Probably the last day that he could speak, mm. he said, a friend came to see him and said, how are you doing, Jim? And he was obviously dying. He said, I'm doing well. Mm. I feel that I have been known. Wow. And I, I got to be known, too. Mm. I was known. And now, that doesn't go away when the person does. That's true. Do you want to describe that? Yeah. Um, Jim died 18 months ago. Um, the loss is very much with me. Um, I, I actually had in my possession a set of tools that were pretty unique to address it, which is that I could write. So I started writing this book uh, the night Jim died. Actually, he died in the middle of the night, and I just lay down there next to him for about an hour because I knew I'd never have that experience again. And then I went downstairs. It was too too early to call anybody, his children, my children. But I opened my laptop and I began to tell this story. Right then? That night. It's what I do. It's what I've done all my life. But, um, but what remains is, and what I wanted to capture, and, and I feel very proud of 
that I have captured is what a, what a good relationship looks like. Not a perfect relationship. Had he, had he lived, I'm sure we would have had our struggles that we didn't have the luxury of going through. I want to say to people who, you know, who are having trouble in their marriage, you have a living person to work with. What a gift that is. But um, I, that endures with me, and it, um, I carry it into the future. Now, you've, you've said uh, addicted to romance. Yeah. And, and the arc of your life includes some evidence of addicted addiction to romance and some relationship issues that weren't as clear and and uh, intimate as, uh, Todd, as this particular relationship. Introduce me to a 64-year-old who hasn't had a few relationship issues. <laughs> true, that's true. But but if you don't mind, I'd like to bring it from the ba- all the way forward from early in childhood where your dad, dad was an alcoholic, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, severe alcoholic, it sounded like. Uh, my, my I, you know, my father got drunk every night. And but he was more nice significant... Almost than that is the fact that every morning we pretended it never happened. And when I, when I talk about the experience of growing up in an alcoholic family, which I do because I think it's one of the formative experiences, mm-hmm. maybe the formative experience of my life. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary family in many ways, deeply inspiring family. I, my parents have been dead for decades, but they're very much with me. But when I talk about that experience, I, I identify two very distinct hard things about growing up in an alcoholic family. And one is that the person you love gets drunk and mm-hmm. you can't stop that. And the other, in my case, was, and it's true for so many people in alcoholic families or families of some form of substance abuse, that the keeping of the secret, right. which for a child creates this ex- extreme sense of shame uh, this what did i do wrong and and terror of the secret being found out um and i frankly i attribute that experience to my own choice as a writer for most of my life not all of my writing life i've been writing i've been publishing my work since i was 14 50 years this year but but for the 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 vast majority of the years i've been writing I feel an absolute commitment to give readers nothing less than the truth Mm -hmm. and not to leave anybody reading my work um, feeling the way I used to feel that I was the only one out there. So I, I, you know, I've been, I've gotten a lot of heat for this that I, you know, I've been called the queen of oversharing. I talk about things that some people don't talk about. Hmm. And I, and I, that's very intentional. I, I feel able to. It doesn't, for me, the most disturbing experience is not talking about something difficult. It's having something difficult going on and not talking about it. In addition to keeping secrets, the alcoholic family also has certain roles that become very characteristic. There's a hero, a scapegoat, yes. and all those kinds of things. I was the mascot. The mascot, okay. Yes. I was wondering just, if you know which, 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 one, you, which yeah. one you were in. I was the one to make everything okay. And use and writing as kind of a way to do it? I was. Both of my you parents were, carrying their were crucible, right? brilliant, yeah. talented artists. Um, were they college professors or something? Uh, my father was a uh, college professor and a painter. Were you up at Dartmouth? My, or where, uh, where in New Hampshire uh, were University of New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Um, uh, my mother had a PhD from Harvard, Radcliffe in those days, but as a wife and mother of the 50s, couldn't get a job. Mm. Sold encyclopedias door to door. And uh, onto me, onto my shoulders, uh, fell the responsibility to lay at their feet the acknowledgement and success that that had eluded them. 
Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer, and today over a million people use the amazing Ring video doorbell. They can protect their homes with this. You know how it works. Security begins at the front door, but it doesn't end there. So now they are extending that same level of security to the rest of your home with the Ring floodlight cam. Awesome. Just like Ring's amazing doorbell, floodlight cam is a motion-activated camera and floodlight that connects right to your phone. With HD video and two-way audio, that lets you know the moment anyone steps on your property. And then you can see and speak to them, even set off an alarm right from your phone. That's right. With Ring's floodlight cam, when things go bump in the night, you will immediately know what it is and where it is and talk to it. Whether you're home or away, the Ring floodlight cam lets you keep an eye on your home. Ring floodlight offers the ultimate in-home security with high-visibility floodlights and a powerful HD camera that puts security in your hands. And you can save up to $150 off a Ring of Security kit when you go to ring.com, R-A-N-G, ring.com slash Drew. That is ring.com slash Drew to save $150. I don't know how we do this, but go there. Find it at ring.com slash Drew, D-R-E-W. I'm pleased to welcome Hydrolyte back to our program. Hydrolyte is not only a product that I can safely recommend. It's something that I use all the time. In fact, I have some sitting in front of me right now. It is the best oral rehydration product I have ever tried. In fact, in one event, the same thing myself, and they got there first. And I was sick this week, and I'm taking Hydrolyte. It keeps me hydrated as well as anything better, better than any way I can possibly get hydrated. This is it. And this time of year, it's impossible. Everyone's getting sick, right? They knock you down. It's Staying hydrated is a crucial part of it. So even if you manage to avoid this, obviously, if you get it, it's crucial you take Hydrolyte. But if your schedule's half as busy as mine, then staying hydrated is also important. Getting those eight glasses of water in a day is almost impossible. Beauty of Hydrolyte is whether you're sick or not, you can benefit from the proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water. And Hydrolyte does this better than any sports drink and certainly better than water alone. comes in great flavors, orange berry lemonade, and available as a pre-mixed drink, a powder, or my personal preference is the effervescence fizzy tablets. Simply drop in the water. I then dropped it in a bottle of water today, by several of them, in fact, and I've been drinking it all day. Compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. Come on now. Hydrolyte solutions are appropriate for all ages, and each bottle or package includes easy-to-follow dosing instructions. You can find Find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or online at Amazon.com. And for a limited time, my listeners can save 30% on Hydrolyte. Get some now. Just click the banner on my website at DrDrew.com and use the code DrDrew18, D-R-D-R-E-W-18 at checkout. That is DrDrew.com. Click on the Hydrolyte banner and then the code is DrDrew18. So you, you had to... We also had to be the hero then too, right? I, you had to, you had to, uh, yeah, there was some of that yeah. too. I have a sister, but she 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 turned down the job offer. Oh, yeah. So uh, very wisely, I'm the younger one. Um, so yes, it's the, the, the person who's going to make them happy and fix it that way. And I began publishing my work. 14. Well, very I began crazy. actually, uh, if you count Humpty Dumpty magazine, even younger. But um, crazy. Uh, before now, I could even write, my mother was taking dictation on my stories and <laughs> – mailing them in and I we didn't play sports in our family we didn't go to games we didn't we didn't have barbecues we wrote and it's not how I raised my children but there was no way that you could emerge from that household and not know how to write well and, and this is where JD Salinger found you was when you were writing for one of these magazines as well, a teenager well when I was 18 years old mm-hmm. in my freshman year at Yale um, I took a bunch of my clippings. I was a very shy girl, and I was not a worldly person. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, but I was bold about my writing. I, I knew I wrote well. Is it Hanover? And, where, where, where uh, were you? 
Uh, I was in at Yale in New Haven. No, no, I mean in New Hampshire. Uh, it's a little town called Durham. Durham. Um, uh, mailed my clippings to the editor in chief of the New York Times with a letter that said, "I'd like to write for you." It's the kind of thing you sort of have to be eighteen years old to do. And interestingly, he wrote back and said, "Okay." And he gave me an assignment to write the only story I was equipped to write, which was the story of my life, my growing up. Uh, this was 1972. And I wrote my story. Uh, they sent a photographer to take my picture in my blue jeans at the, the Yale campus. And about three weeks later, there I was in full color on the cover of the New York Times magazine section. And this was 1972 when we had so much less media. You know, there were three channels on TV and there were a handful of magazines that everybody read and that was one, at least on well, the East Coast. And, and the written word had – I want to talk yes. with you about this because Absolutely. people don't understand the history of the written word in the a, 50s, 60s a, and 70s. It was a 6,000-word article that, you know, that people still had the attention span for. And literally uh, two days after the, that article appeared in – on the cover of the New York Times magazine, um, there was a sack of mail on the doorstep of my college dormitory room with about a thousand <laughs> letters, including offers, everything that my mother ever wanted for me, offers from magazine editors and book editors and TV producers and radio producers. And, you know, if you'd been around then, it would have been you. Uh, and an invitation to audition for The Exorcist and <sighs> model clothes from Mademoiselle. And in among all of those letters, everything That's my mother ever crazy dreamed of. crazy little ripple there. And wow. For a small town girl oh. from New Hampshire, for any girl from me. Incidentally, the article was called, and I totally missed the irony of this, An 18-Year-Old Looks Back on Life. Oh wow, that's funny. Um, so, but but this and I didn't the, look beautiful in the picture, but I looked real. You looked uh, of the time. I was yeah, and I was I had no makeup on. My hair was kind of a mess. I was wearing you know kind of ratty blue jeans. Um, but in among those letters was one very different one, saying, typewritten, single spaced, dear Miss Maynard. Um, I'm not quoting exactly, but close. Um, I want you to know that I read your article on Sunday and I think you're a real writer and I'm sending you words of caution and warning because I, I know something about the dangers of early success and you will be exploited. Kind of ironic words as it turned out. Um, and he went on to say, I bet you're sitting in your college dormitory room now surrounded by letters from editors of magazines and book editors and people wanting you to model clothes for Mademoiselle and audition for movies and every single thing that was happening. So already I thought the author of this letter is clairvoyant, magic, yeah. has some ability to understand me and my life, my, you know, my secrets. Again, it's hard for people to – let me restate this. It's like people don't understand like getting on – getting called to the couch on The Tonight Show if you're a comedian, the next day, yes. your life is different. This yeah. is the same thing with the written it, word. It, it was. Certain publications, if you're in New and Yorker. Honestly, I, my greatest ambition was not to be a famous writer, although my parents had raised me to be that. Mm -hmm. Mine was to know a happy life because I hadn't known that, to be part of a happy family. Mm. Um, and here was this person who seemed to know me as nobody else did. The author and I, of The Catcher in the Rock. I get to the Salem. bottom of and the you, page. And you, of course, had read his books and things. No, I hadn't, what? actually. I had not. I, I was a TV watcher. I wasn't a reader at that point. What? Um, but I knew. But so a writer, I, but not a reader. That's crazy. I might have been more impressed if I'd gotten a letter from John Lennon. But uh. it wasn't his name that impressed me. It was what he said. And we embarked on a correspondence that obliterated everything else that was going on in my life. And when school ended, that, that 
spring, that June, the first thing I did was to go visit this man that I perceived 35 years older than I, he was 53. So he was grooming you for that year. Um, I didn't that's, that's, see it that way. I understand, but that's grooming behavior. Um, I, I saw him as my, my mentor, my I teacher, my friend, my spiritual guide. And he saw it differently. And I, and within a matter of weeks, I had given up my full scholarship at Yale Ugh. and my job at the New York Times, cut, oh. off, cut myself off from my friends, mostly my family, um, moved in with him, believing, it's a, a cult as of, an 18-year-old does, mm-hmm. um, that I would be there forever and that he was the only person who understood me and loved and knew me. The, uh, and a year later, I, I wrote my first book there, uh, uh, ostensibly a memoir, although I never mentioned in that Him. 160 pages that I came from an alcoholic family no. or that no. I, I, the youth spokesperson of America in 1972, um, had dropped out of her Ivy League college to move in with J.D. Salinger. And about three weeks before that book was due to be published, I didn't see the connection then, but I certainly do now. He, on a trip to Florida with him, he put two $50 bills in my hand and said, I want you to go back to the house and clear everything out. I don't want to see you again. And said a bunch of other things that if any man said them to me now, I would think I, I, considerably less of the man. Like what? That I was a shallow uh, person who, pers- who, who pursued the, the empty, meaningless uh, attractions of publication and fame. Um, that I was a lightweight. That uh, uh, I, and you're stuck in a car with a, him. Uh, While he's doing this, we were on a beach in Florida, yeah, actually, yeah. with his two children who were just a little younger than me. Oh my god! Um, and I, I went by myself back to New Hampshire in the winter, and cleared my things out, feeling that I had failed. That's what an eighteen-year-old girl thinks. I was nineteen by that time, actually. Oh. And for the next twenty-five years, although I carried on with my life, I am a resilient person and a survivor. So I. I continued to publish work. I married an age-appropriate man. I divorced an age-appropriate man. In between, I had three children that were very appropriate. Mm. Um, uh, But for 25 years, I did not tell that story out of a sense of obligation to the great man. A sense (laughs) of obligation that I have to say, even in this Me Too era, many still seem to believe I, I violated. Are you kidding me? At the age of 44, when my own daughter, my oldest child, turned 18, I suddenly, it was a real flashback experience. Mm-hmm. It happens. And um, I had always viewed the story in terms of what was owed to the great man. And I couldn't have recognized what I deserved. But when I saw Audrey, my daughter, in the position I had been in, mm-hmm. my loyalty shifted to her. And Did I, she, was she exploited by somebody? Or? No, no, not at all. And she, she never would have been. But you she, just identified no, with her. As I, a, as I saw an 18-year-old right. girl in a that child, position. A child. And I gave myself permission to tell this forbidden story. Is it in the documentary about Salinger? Um, story? I was interviewed in that okay. documentary. I don't, okay. I don't have a high opinion of that documentary, but I do uh. appear in it. But what I did was I wrote the real story and somewhat naively believed, this was 1998, that... Once I explained what my true experience had been, my story would be understood. It wasn't a, a an act of vengeance. It was just I I believe you know everybody has a right to to tell their story. Salinger was still alive at this point. I had actually gone to see him in an attempt to speak to him about this. He he 
he shook his fist at me and and said some pretty terrible things that actually did not hurt me at 44. Like what kind of things? He said, he said the problem, he didn't invite me into his house. He was almost 80 at that point. I stood on the doorstep. I'd knocked on his door and I said, I've, I've come to ask you a question, Jerry. What was my purpose in your life? And he, he spilled out a lot of invective, but then he pointed his finger at me and he said, the problem with you, Joyce, is you love the world. Mm, he hates it. So I went home. That freed me, actually. That liberated me. I had lived in fear of his judgment and sought his approval for a very long time. Mm. But I, I then wrote a memoir that became my book, At Home in the World, which was published in the fall of 1998. And I wish I could tell you that, you know, the kind of response that we are now seeing to women coming forward with their stories took place in the fall of 1998. Quite the contrary. Every major publication in the country condemned not so much just the book, but me personally. There was an editorial in the New York Times called me a predator, an exploiter of this person who just wanted to be left alone. The critic from Time magazine said, the one good thing about Joyce Maynard's book at Home in the World is that now that she's told the one story of significance that she has to tell, we will never have to hear from Joyce Maynard again. And of course, those were sort of fighting words. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. And I've published, I think, nine books since then. But, but that book continued to be a really forbidden book. It, it, uh, it did uh- not... Uh, it, it's it's not a book that's in the canon of memoir. I it's it's had a little resurgence in the last I was few months. Say, are people coming around? People and are actually. I'm I'm really curious to see. Um, uh, this will be the first cycle of publication since since all the Me too movement mm-hmm. um, this next month, and I'm curious to see. But it seems as if stores are selling that book again. Um, and I do not understand why people are not uh, clamoring to interview you because it, it's so. Well, you're, they're just not all as smart as you are, Drew. No, no, no. Or they're not all as smart as your as Michelle, pers- as Michelle <laughs> who got me got on the show. Me. Yeah. Um, but this this is deeply meaningful. Uh, th- this guy, th- these are the guys that we want called out and and brought to the surface. The guys. It's that a very groom clever and form of manipulation. It's and if you behavior. possess the skills of J D. Salinger, then that letter that you send to the girl will be basically a letter from Holden Caulfield, which is what my letters were. And I'm sure it's what it, you heard. That's what it is absolutely what yeah. I heard. I, there's a postscript to this, which is that the year after I published At Home in the World, I decided that I had no further need for those letters. Mm. About 60 pages of handwritten and hand-typed, typed in some, a few cases, letters from Salinger. And I decided they, they actually weren't love letters, incidentally. They were kind of pedantic. They were about writing and Zen and music, jazz and uh, baseball. Uh, but I felt that um, I had no further need for this record of, of a, a very unfortunate history that had taken away a lot of my youth or that I had allowed to take away my youth. And so I put them up. I, I consigned them to Sotheby's to be auctioned off. And I really hoped... If I'd been independently wealthy, I would have just given them to the Library of Congress or Yale University. But they were put up for auction with, with the hope that some university would purchase them for their collection. It was actually the biggest single document of Salinger that mm. had appeared in 20 years. 
Um, there was an outcry in the press that J- Joyce Maynard was selling her love letters now. Look at that shocking woman. What would she do next? And the man who ultimately did buy them, a very wealthy man, returned them to Salinger. However, <laughs> since then, in the aftermath of that, I have probably heard from about 50 women. Some a few years older than me, some a few years younger who also have letters from Salinger. See, I, I think we need to do a new New York Times article with you on the front and the entire arc of this. Well, I'm happy to say it. that I've, although I tell this story to you because I you, you know, needed to catch you up a little bit in the last few decades, but but I don't, it's not my objective to to spend my life with this story. And I'm, I'm, I was very happy actually the, the new memoir is, is almost a bookend to the old one because it is the story of a good relationship. I, I get a it. good and, man. And for you, I could not be happier. But for women generally, yeah. <laughs> this this needs to be oh, somehow believe processed, me, metabolized. I always, I'm always there. In fact, anytime I give a, a speech, a condition is that copies of At Home in the World be present so that women can give them – women and men can give them to their daughters – it's it's really it's a book I dedicated to my eighteen year old daughter. Because I, I even yesterday somebody told me, well, I had a, I had a you know relationship with a teacher, and, but I really wanted it. I'm like, no, no, no. When no. you're that age, you you don't know what you, you want. Know. He's create he's grooming that. He's yes. manipulating that out of you. And his job, even if he were to do that and unknowingly create the attraction, his job is to hold the boundary. That's yes. his job. Yes. It's about power, isn't it? Yeah, yeah of course. It's and about mis- power. misappropriation yeah. of power. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in the case of me and Salinger, um, I, I was actually, and I, I think he was very skillful in recognizing who the girls were. I, I mentioned, you know, my daughter would not have gone. Did you talk to like these that. other women? The 50 um, they, almost every one of them came from an alcoholic family. Perfect. Yeah. Well, brushing your teeth is a very important part of your day and your overall health and at Quip. They know and they've combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of the bulkier traditional electric brushes. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsick. They've, they've thought of everything design-wise. It's a great product. And because it cleans your mouth the way it should be cleaned, Quip's subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule. They deliver new brush heads every three months for just $5. That includes free shipping worldwide. And Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals. It includes dentists, hygienists, dental students. Most toothbrushes do not get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, but Quip did. So it starts at just $25. Go to getquip.com slash Drew right now, and you'll get your first refill pack for free. That is, again, that first refill pack for free at getquip.com, Q-U-I-P, getquip.com slash Drew. Not Dr. Drew, just Drew. Getquip.com slash Drew. Diabetes increases your risk of heart disease and high cholesterol. You really should know that. I'd be surprised if you didn't, but if you don't, be aware. February is American Heart Month. Be proactive about your heart health and talk about your risk factors for heart disease and high cholesterol with your physician. Your medical team can work to create a treatment plan that fits your lifestyle and lowers your risk for high LDL cholesterol and heart disease. Take control by knowing your numbers. Get tested for glucose levels, blood pressure, and cholesterol. For more information, visit womeningovernment.org. That's womeningovernment.org. 
When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. A lot of times that is not the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they are not available. Now with True Car, of course I'm talking about True Car, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by True Car, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a True Car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Yeah, you know, and we talk about it all the time. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. Next, True Car, TrueCar.com or True Car app will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. Over 3,000 True Car Certified Dealers are available nationwide. You will get to work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer that you may contact with. And True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster, better buying experience when they contact a True Car Certified Dealer. And on average, you can expect to save over $3,000 off MSRP. Once you register, you'll see a real price on actual inventory. Hook up with that True Car certified dealer. Have a better buying experience. True Car, go to the truecar.com or True Car app. Do what I'm telling you. So he, he just knew he was what he knew his targets. Yeah. And it wasn't that I even mentioned in my New York Times article that I came from an alcoholic family. Of course, I was still in my shame place. Interestingly, the one word that was used most consistently in the reviews, almost always negative, of, 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 of at book. home in the world, yeah. was shameless. God Meaning, damn it! It's I'm, a I'm bad so thing to angry. be. <laughs> I'm so angry. This is not, you. You need to. This this is an important piece of history do to you, help us. Do understand. you have a daughter? I do, yeah. and, but it, but well, I don't. I'm having. Tr- I, I suggest that you give this book to I, her. I, I, I will. She she will be. Well, she may actually call you because because she's a nonfiction writer. That's what uh-huh. she does, and so and that's sort and of. How old is she? 25. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And she's out in New York and stuff. So. I, I don't want to suggest that older people can't read this book, too. I think well, you do but, fine but, reading this but, book. But, and it's, you know, sometimes when I go somewhere, people will say, oh, you're the one who wrote the book about Salinger. Ugh. Well, actually, no. I wrote a book about me, and Salinger chose to be a part of my life. And it is a very odd phenomenon at the age of 64 that a man that I, I, Last saw fleetingly at age 44, but never spent, you know, any time in his company since age 19, has continued to be an element in my life just about every day of my life. For those first 25 years, I didn't speak of him, but I was always asked about him. It was known, and I was very loyal, and, uh, oh, I don't speak about Salinger. Um, and frankly, I'd rather talk about other things, but I understand well, your, I'll tell your you my, my interest, I've, concern. I've, well, I'm, I'm trying to understand the Me Too movement as thoroughly as I possibly yes. can. And unless you understand this kind of history, yeah. it's hard to really place where we're going. And it's I have to, some frustrations with this because I, I really did hope that the Me Too movement would be somewhat retroactive in ways. It, that, it needs to be. That that I, it, it really um, needs to be because because um, I think it's there's a lot of anger that's built up from somewhere. And you're yeah. this is a perfect. He was he essentially was a cult leader. Uh, that's what he was doing, uh, right? Fifty women in a cult. Uh, they temporarily across time spread out, but still, it's cult BS. Yeah, and none of this. I should say, you know. I, I'm not the anti-Salinger here. You know, those books are the same books they always were, you know, and you can love the books. And, you know, I don't think we, we have to believe that 
Pablo Picasso lived the most exemplary life he with women. He was horrible. Yeah, but, no, no, you but know, he can, was terrible. I know it. And I, and I will always go to the museum to see Picasso. Well, but this is what we have to reconcile is like who, who, we don't take paintings off the wall because they're a misogynistic domestic violence a-hole, but, but, we have to figure out what we do with it. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. people are losing things in the current time that yes. for lesser, far, yeah. far lesser yeah. uh, problems. Yeah. It's, it's disturbing. But and let, let me switch gears a little bit and talk about writing generally. Yes. People today do not appreciate that in the 50s particularly, when it, the written word, the novel, the poem, that was the – the highest form of that was, that was the top of the mountain. Yes, everyone wanted to be a writer the way everyone w- would want to be a movie star, say in the seventies. And they read, read and read, memorized and read and poetry, ta- and talked about yes. it, and, yes. and you know the, your status was determined by who yes. you were reading, what you were reading, what you thought yes. about. It. I mean, it's particularly in New York, the whole scene was about reading and writing and poetry. What what was that like? And then what's happened? Well. <laughs> Um, and is it coming back? You know, I'm I, I'm not an old fogey here. Um, I I appreciate modernity and everything. You know, not everything that's come down the pike, but all the you know. There's there's a, there's a lot new that I celebrate, but the degradation of language I do not. Mm. Um, I um, <laughs> the other day uh, I'll tell you. I'll give you the the actual context of this. Uh, there was a man who was courting me in this sort of you know post my widow position. And he kept on sending me these texts. Very nice man. This wasn't Tinder. This is actually text. These were text messages. No pictures. Uh, Emojis of flowers and butterflies. (laughs) And it was such a nice man. I finally had to say to him, you know, I love flowers and I love butterflies, real ones. But pushing a button to show me a a little emoji of a butterfly – or a flower that you didn't draw um, that is in no way from human hands does absolutely nothing for me. My, I grew up, it was an old-fashioned household in some ways. My, my parents, between the two of them, had most of the Western canon of literature, and in my father's case, the Bible, committed to memory, and, and spoke it, and had those rhythms in their voices. And it's, you know, that's, that's gone. They're, you know, they're, that doesn't exist anymore. But I'm holding the line as best I can. I, I, I mostly write. My profession, my career for for my whole adult life has been this odd thing of writing books. But I, I teach on rare occasions. And when I do, I only teach memoir because I want to help other people tell their stories. And I, I hold whoever I work with, usually not people who are going to go on to be professional writers, to a standard of language that, that I believe in, it's, that honors what the word can do. Well, I was just thinking about this man with his emoji. Thank God he spared you what most men send pictures of. Oh, and you know, so. and I, I, I actually, I felt I had to tell him because I didn't want to be irritated anymore. And and I and I liked him, but I, not that way. But but anyway, do you think it's coming back? Writing? Do you think the written word is going to have some sort of resurgence? Oh gosh, um, probably not like it was. But I, who knows? I mean, you know, I don't. Att- I I never attempt to make these sort of big. Broad statements. Mm. Uh, I'll just speak of my little world. I'm I'm holding the line the best I can. I am I'm a storyteller and I'm a writer. And I um, I really I want whether I'm writing a novel, which I often do. Most of my books are novels or a memoir. I want to hold you gripping that book so you can't put it down. Mm-hmm. I want to keep you up all night. I want I want the sound of my words to be. To, to, to be a beautiful thing in your ears or in your head. 
um, I love recording my books. I, I do all my own audiobooks because the sound of language is, is something. If I could, I would be a singer. And since I can't sing well, that's my music. What's your favorite book? My favorite book of all the books ever. Or you can give written. me a couple. Oh, gosh. No, I can't give you a couple. A few? No, I won't. An author? <laughs> I won't even An go author? there. Okay. Well, it's, it changes constantly, but I'm rereading Raymond Carver right now. Hmm. I love the spareness of that language. I love the, the absolute honesty and authenticity of every single second in those very short stories. He never wrote novels and he wrote poetry, but, um, but it, on any given day, it would be a totally different answer. Do you like Hemingway? Um, I do like Hemingway. I'm, that, that economy of language. Uh, yes, economy of language. It's a little bit more of the sort of the, the cult of the male yeah, yeah, you know, thing. Yeah. So it doesn't speak to me in the right, same ways. Right. Uh, the and women it, of Hemingway don't get to me the way the women of Raymond Carver do. You know who I, I – I, a, a, a Hemingway character that I thought was great was uh, – was it Pietro or Piero? Pierre, the woman that in uh, – I think it was For Whom the Bell Tolls. Ah. And she is like a – she's essentially a – uh, underground. It's during the Civil War, and she's an underground leader, essentially. Uh, and and yeah. her, word trans, her name translated as rock. Yeah, <laughs> thought, yes, I, I know that what that was, means. I thought that was but, great. You see, now I'm going to make a, a, a shameful admission I've never read, because I'm, I'm I've never read For Whom the well, Bell I could Tolls, say, I, because I'm a college dropout. <laughs> that makes me so mad that he, he took away your <laughs> And I could have still read that book. Yeah. Right? It's no excuse. Uh, and when you say the word, I think, of course, we're talking about English. Yes. Is there Well, no- I love French. I love Spanish. I love language. Do, do you speak other languages? I do. Okay. And I, um, my books are published in, in French. In fact, I'm going to tell you the title of this new book in, in the French because it has a totally different title. And I'll say it in French because I love to say the French and I'll tell you what it means. It comes from something that my husband Jim said about six weeks before he died. So it's unrelated to the original – your English title. Totally. Yeah, yeah. The English title is The Best of Us. Um, the French title is – Un jour tu raconteras cette histoire. Which a day means, to tell the story. <laughs> no, one day you will tell this oh. story. Which Jim knew me very well. I like that. How come you didn't do it in English? I, it's very French, but yeah, I love that title. Yeah. And, and, it, and he always knew. Jim was a very private man, but I, he totally endorsed my – he knew I would tell this story. I wanted it to have a different ending, but um, – and that's why, as I said, I started to write it the night he died. That's what I, that's what I know to do is tell stories. And I was raised for it in a, a boot camp, really. Meaning? My, my parents. Meaning you know, at dinner table and things like that? Dinner table, breakfast table, on my walks with my father, always. Just always. talking about books. Talking about language, listening to poetry, memorizing poetry, um, talking about ideas, yeah. Now, I, I hear three or four different phenomena there. Talking about ideas is sort of more like philosophy. And- yes. And um, I mean, my parents celebrated uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. You, could have, you could have taped us. Actually, they did one, one night. They just put a tape recorder reel to reel under our dinner table. And, just, and keep in mind, this is a household where you know, we talked about art, music, politics, religion, sex even. Never the thing that was actually happening. But so, they so were how would that brilliant. Work? Would he drink at the dinner table? No. He'd go upstairs to the attic? After, to and, the attic. And what time was that? Uh, early. My father was a painter, and he was a really wonderful painter. Would he paint up there while he drank? He would paint all night paint long. Paint and drink. Paint and, he get and drink, and no, no, no. And I would go up and look at his paintings, and we would talk about the paintings together. He was, you can actually Google his name. His paintings are, he was, he, at the very end of his life, he was discovered as a painter. 
in his 70s, but he painted in total obscurity for most of his life. Hmm. Um, Max Maynard is his name. And his, he died when I was 27, but he's very present in my daily life because his paintings are all over my house. In, aside from the fact that it's scary to see your parents intoxicated, was there some other behavior that he nope. manifested? No. So uh, just this persistent isolation. No, he was not violent. Isolation he and- was sad, hmm. and that's almost the worst because I couldn't make him happy, and I tried – so hard to do that. It was mm-hmm. funny. I danced. I sang. I did goofy routines. Um, but I couldn't fix it. I was his. He called me chum. I was his sidekick. Mm. And I, I was with him all the time. That's the mascot piece you yeah. were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Seems very painful. Yeah. Many people have painful family stories. And I'm but one. This is painful for you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's okay. Yeah. These are yeah. human experiences. I... You know, I I fully own it. My my approach to to um, painful experience tends to be dive right in the middle of that wave and swim around in it, and then go and talk about it. So mad at JD Salinger. <laughs> so mad at him. I hope I haven't ruined these books for you. you know uh, that- I'm thinking about going back and reading some stuff just to see what I can pluck out about his psycho. Well, you will see if you yeah. you know if you're if you're alerted to this. Yeah. You certainly do see the celebration of. Young girls. And, you know, everybody has his or her story. And there's a reason why he, I think he was sort of trapped in adolescence as he grew older and older. It's one vision of hell, you know, to to still be fixated. I mean, really, the problem with me, the reason I had to go, um, apart from the fact- You grew up. I grew up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so did he? Did he? I was too old for him. Did he go with any under eighteen children? Uh, no. I think he was very careful mm. that way. Uh, I now know because I've heard from so many of these women that he was writing letters to other girls while I was with him, believing that I was the love of his life. Of he course. was certainly the love of mine. <laughs> yeah. This uh, guy yeah, needs to be called out a little bit, but but I really I would I just feel like it's important in the context of the conversation we're all having about me too. I, I I don't I don't can't put it all together yet, but there's something important there. Connecting that because I've always felt like this very much a lot of what's going on now is some anger built up that started in the 70s or women bought a bill of goods uh-huh. in the 70s. The, yeah. the, the bill for which is getting coming due now. Yeah, but we're and, talking – I mean at Home in the World, the book about Salinger yeah. was published in 1998. Uh, so No, I understand. But you still know, your, your experience and yes, whatever has accumulated is – I actually – I feel a, a double trauma – Mm. Um, and I, I don't even want to use that word trauma. I'm a I, I'm a high functioning person. I you know I, I I raised my children. I paid the bills. I I do what I need to do, and I feel like a pretty strong woman. But um, took care of my husband well. Mm. Um, but there was the initial experience with Salinger that happened when I was 18. There was the 25 years in which I lived labored under the impression, although I was working as a writer, always publishing books, working as a journalist. I was at the New York Times that I could never tell that story. And then there was this triumphant release of, okay, I get to tell the story. Because again, it's more secrets. Yes. And then I published that book. I'm now 44 and slammed down, really just- Yeah, re-traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I guess that I do, you know, that's probably a bit of a sensitive point, you know, and that's why- Are you afraid it's going to be, again, you're afraid- No, I'm not afraid. You know something? I'm afraid of just about nothing now is really the truth. What what more can they say about me? Um, When this new book was published, um, the uh, very well-known 
critic for The Atlantic, published a review of the book. I was excited. I thought, oh, The Atlantic is reviewing my book. That's really great. Um, because often I'm not sort of respected as a true writer. I'm that person who, you know, exploited Salinger. Oh, I'm my God. Kiss and tell person. Um, <laughs> this in spite of publishing 17 books. Mm-hmm. Um, the title of The Atlantic piece about me ostensibly about my book, but it was really me once again, was The Queen of Oversharing. Oh, you said this, yeah. Um, yeah. So it was once again, uh, there goes Joyce Maynard talking about her life. I, I don't know whose life I should be talking about, if not my own. I don't think you'd want me speculating no, about I, like yours. I, like I told you, my, uh, my daughter is in a graduate program where this is all they do. Yes, Nonfiction, creative writing about their lives. And of course, it. I mean, it, you know, it, it doesn't mean you say what you ate for breakfast this morning. It is a, it is it is a serious exploration in in what it meant, where where it took you, what your particular journey was. Um, but I I know, and I do not give advice. I don't tell people how to live their lives. I put mine out the best I can, um, and leave it for the intelligence of the reader and boy do i have respect for the intelligence of the reader well i uh, i figure I've it got out pretty good listeners and i and i want them to tweet you at joyce maynard i've rarely given direction to my to my listeners but i'm telling them right now to it's at joyce maynard and show her some support and your thoughts and and you know it's it's got to strike you the way it strikes me everyone listening to this that that there's a historical moment here we're all living through, and it started right about with you on the front page of that magazine. I, I just feel a, a de- arc from from there. And um, if any of you are relating to the stories, if any of you have read her books and appreciate it, just put it out on Twitter and, and, and tag her at Joyce Maynard, M-A-Y-N-A-R-D. Because I, I, I don't think you quite – appreciate where this fits and what's it was a pretty intense time we're experiencing right now. oh no yeah. i appreciate believe and, me and, and i get it i think you're I didn't a part miss it. of it i yeah. did not miss it i have been sort of holding up my hand and waving saying hello um and, and you were the you were you were a victim uh not only of a, a, a cult leader essentially but you're also a victim of the the, the male patriarchy that then attacked you when you tried to speak up and um, that's that's that is and, that's the part you I know agree. That and was i really have to the, say drew that when i hear that word victim i kind of i flinch because well, you're not I don't a victim want you are a victim i, I understand I, but but I, you were the, the i don't know let's think of a better word for it you were the object of scrutiny yes, by a, yeah. a a patriarchy that treated you not just unfairly but horribly uh-huh. and and it's at least and apology is not enough. Uh, just let's put you in the historical context of what we're dealing with here. And uh, and really, uh, as we try to understand where we're going with the Me Too thing, which I'm deeply interested in trying to figure out because I don't understand mm-hmm. why why we let athletes and rock stars off the hook. But then uh, Fra- James Franco maybe does something. I don't know. Maybe. No. They won't tell us. And, mm-hmm. and he should lose everything. <laughs> it's like uh, I don't understand the uh, logic of well, what we're about to here. letting presidents off the hook? Yeah, I, or, President, uh, yeah, uh, listen, singular. And, and Bill Clinton. And there's a lot of them. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of people. And, and I, we're, it seems a little um, – it seems illogical, but there's got to be a logic to it. And that's what I'm trying to understand. Uh, and I'm, and I, 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 I'm I, thinking history is – The concern that I have is that it's, it's still very um, – it, it, it's selective – 
Um, yeah. You know, the, the movie that's, stars the, can go out and do, talk about it. That's right. But, but the secretaries in the office, are they, do they feel... That's the question. Or, do do yeah. they feel able to complain about a boss? Do, you know, the medical workers, do the, the domestic workers, do the waitresses... I, I don't feel like you've ever been listened to about your 1998 experience. Uh, Have people really heard what you went uh, through? No, yeah. No, I mean, actually, that's... That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. That's I, I. I hear you. You know, I, I'll tell you a story. I, um, you know, there are certain memoirs that are are you know known. You know, everybody. You know, if you ask their favorite memoir, they all name you know Glass Castle, you know Frank McCourt, whatever. And mine is never on that list. Um, but I learned that there was one professor, one college professor in the United States who was teaching at home in the world. Okay. And um, she actually wrote something about the intense discussion, you know, because there was a lot of controversy amongst her students. This was a few years ago about, you know, whether I had a right to tell this story. Whether you had a right. Um, this your and story. so I, this was a professor. Whether you had a right. This Think was a professor that. at Yale. Okay. And so I wrote to her. Uh. And I said, if you would ever like me to visit your class, I will. This is the sort of thing I've been doing for 20 years. Yeah, I, yeah. I figure, okay, at my own expense, I'll get on a plane, I'll fly to, to – I'll get to New Haven and I'll talk to this class. So, so I did that and, and I – but the one class that I have ever heard that studies that book and that's did you true. Go? Did you oh, go? oh, I go every year. Oh. Every year I go. And I – it's sort of I, – I, I mean I'm almost just sort of doing it on a – Person by person basis. Has the, has the conversation changed? Uh, yeah, I never anymore encounter young people in that class who don't think that I had a right to tell that story. They, oh, they, they're, it's, it's bizarre. And, and, it's and your it, story. Yeah, and it's now, it, you know, I'm. I'd like to think that the, that it is now a different generation. That yeah, is, oh, you yeah. know that that are they are appalled. But um, but actually, it 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 has some. Lasting reverberations. And one is that a book that I was deeply proud of, am deeply proud of, has not been read. Which one? At Home in the World. That book. I'm confused. They're not even starting to now? Um, Well, as I said, I'm very curious to see what's happening in this current cycle. But but it it never has been. It's if you, I'm going to make a challenge to your reader, to your listeners. If you go to Barnes and Noble or I hope your independent bookstore and ask for that book, they won't have it. They well, never I, I, have it I on the. I hate to say it, but Amazon will. Amazon, I, I, Amazon will. <laughs> so they're probably going to Kindle yeah. or something too. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I am I'm anxious to read it now because. Oh, uh, good. And and is it still sort of that eighteen year old experience that you're looking? I mean, what's your perspective as you're writing that book? Is it adult? Um, no, I wrote it. Um, I actually wrote it in the first person of all the different ages that I was. It goes up to age forty four. Mm-hmm. When you're able to um, get and that perspective, the, the I'm pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I end it actually with my visit to Salinger um, in nineteen the fall of nineteen ninety seven on the eve of my forty fourth birthday um, when I knocked at his door. I had a weird preoccupation with him as a, as a young person. Well, many did. What do you yeah. think? What was the source of it for you? Um, the mystery. He was like yes. this. This. He seemed like a cult leader, and yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize that's what I was responding to. But in retrospect, it was that kind of. And and I always like the books and stuff, and I yeah. like the short stories actually better than. The, I the, think the short stories yeah. are the, are the and, real masterpieces. But I may have to go read them, and, and it was the characters I, I liked, the, you know, and they were quirky and weird and very much. And at the I'm time. not going to say anything bad about Salinger as a writer, you know. I those books are are extraordinary books, so, some more than others, I think. And they're it's a very small lexicon. Uh, lexicon, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at him again now with an eye towards his psychopathy and what what I'll be pulling out of there because I'm sure it's in there not not just the glorification of young female. He also has to have a real uh, there has to be a problem. 
he must have been sexually abused or something, and that's why the um, the you know I I have never believed in that it was my place to speculate on the cause. Mm. I I try to stick with what I know. Mm. I I see myself almost like a documentary filmmaker in that book. I'm going to give you the footage and then let you interpret. I never use any labels of, Mm -hmm. you know, who I Mm -hmm. think he might be. But I do talk about his extreme preoccupation with World War II and in which he fought. And he was, he was in fact in some very hard places to be. Oh. Um, he was in a, 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 a rehearsal for D-Day that was a brutal experience. And the story, I'll tell you a little story that you, you might, you probably know the story for Esme with Love and Squalor. Yeah, sure. And there's, as you may remember, there's a, a, a very emotionally damaged soldier who yeah. meets this young girl, this yeah. lovable, charming, innocent, young, young girl, Esme, yeah. uh, abroad. And she's wearing a watch. She's wearing a very large watch. Well, on the cover of the New York Times magazine section, I was wearing my watch. And it's the kind of watch I've worn all my life. I'm wearing one right now. I wear a man's watch, very large. And I was very, very skinny, so my watch was always flopping around on my wrist. Somehow that's his... So the face was pointed out. And in his... The first time I ever met him, he didn't say this in any of his letters, but the first time I met him, which was June of 1972, when I hitched a ride up to Hanover, New Hampshire, and he picked me up in his BMW and swept me away. Um, he said to me, he took my wrist and he said, you're wearing the watch. Blech. I do still wear a big watch. It's nice. I, you're, you're entitled to. I, but I don't you, think about him I, when I wear <laughs> I just like a big watch. I'm thinking about what it was for my generation that why he was – in addition to his sort of mystique and all that stuff. But he glorified the damaged adolescent. Yeah. He, he really uh, helped gave us a voice and we all kind of feel damaged. The damaged, adolescent. privileged adolescent should be said. Um, I, I would agree with yes. you and that's probably why it related to me as a white male and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, Esme was not really privileged, was she? And, and, no, no, no. I'm speaking about the boy. About, yeah. Oh, about, oh, oh yeah. Caulfield for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, but some of the other characters like Ray's Hot, the Roof Beam Carpenters and things, they, they were not privileged folks that I could recall. But there were a lot of young people that were feeling understood yes. by those characters. Yes. And it, it wasn't the best in us. And it played out in not a great way. There. But it is one of the things that people say about Salinger. You know, I felt he was the first person who understood me. And that's exactly what I yeah. felt and, reading but, you, that but letter. But it was a time oh, – it was such a – I hate the 70s. It was just such a time of – It was some great music. I, I, everyone, that's what people come back at me with the music and the film and <laughs> just watch the deuce that's what the 70s felt like it's, uh, uh-huh. well Joyce listen I've got to wrap this up it has been a, a sheer privilege to talk to you I, I hope well, it's been I, fun I, for you I hope that your listeners will go to my website and they well, can find they will out not go to your, they're going to tweet you that's what I asked them to okay. do they're going to tweet you and then you tell them to go to the website I and, see. and, and okay. then you and then you guys go get the book and let's all go read uh, At Home in the World I'm, I'm, and The Best of Us please and The Best of Us for sure that's, those are all assignments for me um, and uh, follow Joyce at Joyce Maynard and go see her at JoyceMaynard.com. And uh, I, I, we'll talk again. Okay? Thank Sounds you very good. Much. Thank you so much. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D R D R E W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast. 
now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or Dr. Drew.com. Thank you.